I was like really motivated and joined the competition way over my head. So I had like really basic, basic knowledge or not even basic knowledge. So below basic mm -hmm. knowledge. And I joined the competition, which was about speech recognition. So quite a complicated task, but because I know knew nothing in this field, there was a lot, lot to learn. And I worked like really hard. Right now I did like more than 70 competition in, in the seven years. Oh. And by the points I accumulated in this 70 competitions, I have like the highest number of overall points in, in the world. And that like determines like the, the world rank. If you would join today and you want to become number one in the world, you would need to win probably four competitions just by yourself. This episode is brought to you by Training Data. If you're new in data science and want to get into the field, or if you're already in the field but want to progress, well, Training Data is the platform for you. They offer courses on feature engineering and selection, model tuning, interpretability, and much more. You will get both the math and the intuition behind each method, but also Python code ready to power your own projects. So if you're interested, visit the link in the description and don't forget to use the code AI Stories to get a 10% discount. All right, so hello everyone and welcome to the AI Stories podcast. I'm Neil Lizer. I'm a data scientist and I will be your host. So today our guest is Christoph Enkel. He is a senior deep learning data scientist at NVIDIA. But Christoph is also known for doing quite a lot of Kaggle competitions. And in fact, a couple of days ago, he became the world number one on Kaggle. Yes, quite an amazing achievement, number one in the world on Kaggle. So. Well done for this. And before NVIDIA, you also had quite a lot of experiences, including being the CTO of your own startup. And you also got a PhD in mathematics from LMU in Munich. So if the listeners enjoyed the conversation, please follow the podcast, subscribe, share, and leave a five-star review. And yeah, that's it. Let's begin now. Hi, Christoph. Well, first of all, again, a big congrats on becoming world number one on Kaggle. How, how does this feel? <laughs> Hi, thank you. Thank you, Neil, for, for having me. Uh, of course, that, that feels awesome to be ranked number one in the world. I've been uh, ranked number one before, like two years ago or so, but it still feels like an amazing achievement to regain the rank. Yeah, amazing. Well, well done. And we're going to talk about Kaggle. Um, later on, the first thing I want to talk about is how everything started. I'm keen to understand how you actually got into data science and got into the field. I understood that you were doing maths before. So how did this transition happen? Uh, so my, my PhD in, in mathematics was related to stochastic processes and financial markets. So nothing to do with data science. But right after the PhD, I was just curious about AI and neural networks. And because I was already reading in the newspapers and, and just hearing it on the news, but I was very curious what this, this fuss is all about. So I was just um, looking on YouTube if I can find any high level explanation or so on. So I was watching a few videos and explanations and training videos. 
And then I was really fascinated in how, how this works and how the, the machine learning and especially deep learning um, uh, works. So I jumped right into a free Coursera course, hmm. which was offered like six, seven years ago. Um, yeah, that, that was my, my starting point. And right after the, the Coursera course, I was looking for like a hands-on project. I can, I can try and practice the very first uh, skills I gained there. Um, and that's how I found, found Kegel and I joined my first Kegel competition and then, um, it went on and on. So when did you actually start? Was it during your PhD while you were learning math or was it after your PhD that you started to, to get into um, data science? I, I would say it was like in the, in the last few months of the PhD. So the, the thesis was already done but I hadn't the defense yet. So there was uh, some mm -hmm. spare time in between and I was like working part-time and had some free time suddenly because I didn't have to, to work anymore on my, my PhD. That, that's when, when I, I started looking into, into data science. And why not staying in maths? Why, why switching fields? I mean, the PhD is specifically is really theoretical. <laughs> mm -hmm. So um, the only thing would be like to stay, even if you work like in the industry, it won't be that theoretical. Um, the only way which you can really stay close to math and, and what I was doing in the PhD would be to, to stay in academic career. But that, that was not really an option for me just because it's very tricky to have like, like harmony within your, like having a family or, or starting a family and all these things while pursuing an academic career is really difficult. So that was never an option for me. Okay. And so you chose data science. I guess you, you stick to it. For how long have you been in the field now? When when did you start? Um, I started seven years ago. Okay. So seven years in the field. And I'm curious to understand if you think that your maths background actually helped you to to get into the field. Obviously, there is quite a lot of maths involved in data science. So did this background help you or did you feel like you were more starting from scratch? Um, I would say, of course, it doesn't hurt if you know <laughs> like mm -hmm. math, especially like linear algebra, where you do like a lot of matrix calculation and this kind of things. Um, I think it's important to have like a basic understanding of uh, math. Um, so you can like follow like the, the background of all the deep learning and the, the calculations. Um, but what is more important to be like really highly skilled in like data science and especially machine learning and deep learning is rather the, um, the ability to, to solve problems analytically and solve problems like in a structured way. And that's something you really learn during like studying mathematics or, or doing a PhD in mathematics. So it's rather the, the problem solving ability that you learn than the actual, actual math that is useful. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I studied engineering and um, civil engineering, and I think it's kind of the same pattern in civil engineering. You learn to solve practical problems using maths, like how to design a bridge or uh, how to design a dam. And in the end, you've got lots of maths, lots of tools that you need to, to use and you need to get to, to a solution. And I think that this kind of mindset is very important if you, if you want to become a good data scientist, because in the end, your, your job is to solve problems. 
Yeah, exactly. And about the maths specifically, like how important do you think it is to know the maths behind deep learning algorithms, for example, or behind XGBoost for people who, who are getting started? Is it really important to deeply understand how those algorithms work, the maths behind them, or do you feel like yeah, solving problems and knowing how to use those tools is, is more important? Um, for the beginning, I would say the later. So just like knowing how to use the tools is more important just for like the beginning. And nowadays it's even easier to, to use. Like there, there are a lot of high level frameworks where you just do something like model.fit and it runs the whole mathematical shenanigans mm -hmm. in, the, in the background and you don't need to do, you don't need to know anything about it. So for beginners, it's fine to, to have like very, very little knowledge. But as soon as you want to develop more skills, it basically, you need to like really dive into like why things are happening. And, and that's part of the problem solving. So in order to, to solve any problems you have while you're training or you have problems in your architecture, you need to understand the, the, the background and why those problems occur. And this often has to do with like the mathematics behind. So, yeah, so the more, well, yeah, if you want to solve problems in the end, you're going to have issues that are related to the maths behind those algorithms. And so if you don't fully understand the maths behind the, the algorithms, you're going to get issues while solving the problem. And you might not be able to understand where those issue issues come from. Is that what, is that what yeah, you mean? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But as a beginner, it, it's like, mm -hmm good enough to, to just like understand your data and uh, throw some quite easy algorithms onto it and just see what, what comes out. I think that's good for a beginner and to learn about like how this kind of models and so on are training, how, how this kind of things work. Um, but like if you want to be more proficient, then you need to, to have some, some mathematics. Yeah, I kind of agree. And I like your thoughts on starting practically and then digging into the maths like i think many people do the opposite like they will start with an algorithm try to really deeply understand the maths and then maybe start implementing it um i think that's fine it's fine to read also how the algorithm works but i find it more efficient to start just coding see a bit how the algorithm works how do you solve a problem with this algorithm especially if you're a beginner and you don't really know how algorithms work and how well a machine problem is is framed, um, a machine learning problem is framed, and so yeah, I think it's a great idea to start by well knowing a little bit, having a bit of background knowledge about the algorithm, but don't dive into the maths. Start implementing, coding, doing a project with the algorithm, and once you understand how it works, then you can dive into the details. And I think you will better understand the maths if you've already done a project or already had some experience with, with the algorithm. It's very difficult to fully understand the algorithm by just reading maths. That's what that, that's my, my view on yeah, this. Yeah, exactly. It's even like way easier to understand the, the math behind if you know the problem first. So if you know like the problem and how the model is doing, then it's you have like a hands-on example to apply the, the math and to follow any any equations and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's why I think doing a project or having a, a full-time job is great. Like at uni, you learn all those 
algorithms and you understand them somehow, but it's only until I started working that I fully understood how machine learning works and how those algorithms can, can be implemented. So yeah, let's dive into Kaggle now. We talked a bit about how you got into data science and a few advice on how to do well. So you mentioned that you started by taking a free Coursera course, and then you started getting into Kaggle. So first of all, first question for the listeners who don't know what is Kaggle, can you explain very simply what is Kaggle and why is it a great tool for data scientists? Oh, um, I think Kaggle started as a website 12 to 13 years ago. Um, they were hosting machine learning competitions. Um, that's what, what Kaggle is known for. But uh, since, since they started, it now has become rather an online community for data scientists. So competition is now only a part of what Kaggle really is. They also offer like thousands or ten, tens of thousands of data sets also. Um, and they have like a huge community. They are like over 14 million registered users. So 14 million data scientists who share discussions, who share code notebooks, who compete on these competitions, who share um, data sets and discuss data sets and like throw models at those data sets. So, um, and all this, this community gives you like rewards if you share things. So they, they incentivize you really in sharing. You can earn medals for for sharing, you can earn medals in those competitions. And um, yeah, it, it's really like the go-to place for any data scientist to learn in specific uh, in specific fields. And even if you like on your real day job, I often just ran to Kaggle to find like a data set related to my, to my um, day job basically, because there's so much um, knowledge and, and stuff uh, on there. So not only machine learning competitions, it's also about collaborations and data sets and learning new tools. Like it's a lot of learning on the platform and it's not just about yeah. competitions. Yeah, it's really hard to, to just like summarize what, what mm -hmm. they are offering because they're adding more and more um, features to it. So nowadays you can even host your own in-class competition. So if you are like a professor and you want to have like a real hands-on um, study with your with your students you can host like a, a playground <laughs> competition by yourself quite easily and your students can work on like a project those kind of things um, so it's now I think they like a month ago or so they, they started a discord channel where you have like can have like a huge like discussions on, on the discord and so on so their days more and more also evolve um, to to um, host more and more aspects of the data science community. And I think they have been bought by Google in 2017. That also also helps. So mm -hmm. a lot of um, research problems are are discussed and, and hosted on, on Kaggle where like people can like work on, on research problems. So yeah, it's getting bigger and bigger. And it's like the go-to place for, for learning data science and machine learning. And so why did you join Kaggle? How and why did you did you join the platform? So uh, right off the Coursera course, in, the, in those courses, you get some theoretical knowledge and some very basic 
practical knowledge by just answering like multiple choice questions or you write some code snippets, but you don't really have like a hands-on project where you can practice your skills. So I was thinking or I was searching for like a data set where I can just like um, try the stuff I've learned at this free Coursera course. And that's how I found Kaggle. And then where I found, okay, they host like a whole competition, which is just for one specific project where you can like work on for like three months. You have other competitors. You can compare yourself on a leaderboard and you can really get like direct feedback how good you are doing just by seeing how far up or down you are on this leaderboard and how beneficial any new models or new techniques really are. Um, yeah, and I, I was like really motivated and joined the competition way over my head. So I had like really basic, basic knowledge or not even basic knowledge. So below basic mm -hmm. knowledge, just a few, few lines of like Python programming, And I joined the competition, which was about speech recognition. So quite a complicated task with with um, with a lot of deep learning involved. And yeah, but because I know knew nothing in this field, there was a lot lot to learn. And I worked like really hard for three months. Um, I learned an immense number of like algorithms and models and techniques and so on. So I spent like hours every day and then I finished like place 500 out of 1000 teams or so. <laughs> Which isn't bad. Yeah, it's not it's not bad for the very first experience. Um, and then still I was so happy that I learned so much things and I was um, really motivated and like a day after the competition was was finished, I just joined the next one, which was like a completely different topic. And then you start from zero again. Um, and I finished like 100th place of 1000 after three months. And so you gradually improve your skills and improve what you know. And, and step by step, you become better and better in, in the field. So just to make sure this is clear for the listeners, like a competition would be, for example, let's take a very simple example where you need to predict the price of the house. And so you've got a training set where you can train your model. You've got a test set where you're going to be scored. Uh, you're going to be scored on this test set and there is a, a metric, for example, mean squared error or mean absolute error. And so you, you submit your model to the platform. Um, the model gives you a score based on the performance on the test set, which obviously you don't have access to, otherwise it's a bit too easy. And, um, and so the leaderboard is based on the score on this particular metric. Is that correct? Exactly. And then there's one, one interesting twist is that um, during the competition sort of three months you have a part of the test set which is called the public part mm -hmm. and that's what you see on the leaderboard during the three months but then right when the competition is over um, you are evaluated on a different part of the test set which has never been seen or used before that's called the private part and that determines your final rank so the uh, the quality of your model at the very end is really assessed on a completely new set you never have seen and you never have had like access to and that's what makes it so valuable for like the real life so there are some competitions where people spend like three months overfitting mm -hmm. on the public on the public side because they see every day okay i can improve my score by doing this and this and this 
And then at the very end, they drop like hundreds of places just because their model doesn't generalize well to, to really new data. And I think that's a very important skill you learn um, for your day job to not like overfit on, on the test set and generalize well to really new new data. So is this frequent? Are there many teams where they just try to, well, overfit the test set and in the end they, they start to, well? Um, I think it's really a beginner issue. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's a hard lesson that every beginner will learn that you owe, because it's like, you it's like also a psychological thing that you see you're growing on the leaderboard and you want to be better and better and you don't have like this this long-term thing in mind you just have so focused to improve day by day um and it's also really um competition specific so some competition is really easy to overfit to the to the public leaderboard or some it's way harder so it, it depends a little bit so there are really competitions where mm -hmm. Um, you drop like thousands of places if you are not careful and others you can try to overfit as much as you can and you just drop like one or two places so it's really like um, different but it's important to understand like the risk you are you're having and so on what are the things we can do to make sure we we don't overfit what what do you do to make sure that your algorithm is not overfitting I mean, I spend a lot of time in building a reliable validation set, um, a validation set that ideally reflects the, your test set, basically. So you rather use information coming from this validation set than using the, the information you gain from the public leaderboard. That's like the best approach, if it's possible. Sometimes in some competitions, the test set really comes from a different domain and addressing this domain shift is like part of the competition or part of the problem. Then it's, then it's really hard to get like a reliable um, validation and to generalize, to generalize well on the, on the private part because you just have, you don't have like a reliable mm -hmm. approach. But in general, I think having a very good validation setup is like the most important thing. And it's also a very, if not the most important thing you learn for your day-to-day your -day job, I would say. So so by validation set, what you're doing is you're training your model on a training set. And then do you fine-tune you, you fine your hyperparameters on these validation sets? Or this is kind of a, a second test set in some sense that you really don't see? Yeah, it's... What you normally do, you split off a part of your training set and splitting off needs to address somehow the discrepancy between your training and test set. So for example, if, um, let me think of a good, good examples. If, for example, you have a training set of products coming from one region or coming from different regions and your test set is from another region, um, then you should also split your training set in a training and validation mm -hmm. part by region, region so that in your validation set is a new region and you don't train on this region already because it needs to reflect that you want your model to generalize well on, on new regions, things like this. And for this, you already need to understand the data a little bit. So you need to spend um, some time and understanding how the test set is different to the training set and then try to replicate this uh, difference also in your in your training and validation split 
And then you can do whatever you want on your validation, mainly evaluate your model, tune hyperparameters, mm. and so on and so forth. Okay, great. And so you do this so that your score on the public test set reflects your score, that um, your final score on the unseen test set, right? If yeah. if you only yeah. tune your hyperparameters on the on the validation set, um, yeah, you should have a similar score on the public test set and on the unseen test set. Yeah. And so maybe one last question on the beginning of um, your Kaggle career. I'm curious, what would be your advice for people who want to start learning and doing competitions on Kaggle? Do you need to be already advanced to start a Kaggle competition? It looks like no, based on your experience. But yeah, what, what would be your your advice if I want to get started tomorrow or in a couple of months, what should I do? I think um, so your um, result or achievement will be directly correlated to how much time you spend on the competition. And that um, depends on how you motivated how motivated you are on the problem. So first of all, I think people should choose not the easiest topic, but the topic or the, the competition, which is most motivating for them or most um, interesting for them, even if, if it sounds hard or if, even if it sounds complicated and you don't have any, any experience. But if you're like interested in LLMs because um, you're like fascinated in what like ChatGPT and those kind of models can do, then you should join a competition which is related to LLMs. Because if you're like motivated in the subject, then you will like spend more time on this than if you do like some other project you're not really so so motivated to to learn about, but which might seem more simple or something. And then as soon as you joined the competition, you should start really simple. So don't over-engineer, really start as simple as possible and then gradually improve. That That's the most important advice because people tend to start with a big model so that they start with like good scores on their public leaderboard um, and then over the time they drop in in their their scores and ranks just because with a big model you can't do many experiments in in short time mm -hmm. because it takes longer to train it's more complicated it's easier to like have any errors and things But if you start with a very simple model, you can iterate faster, you can try a lot of ideas, this kind of things. So start with like a very simple model, spend uh, some time in getting your validation right. I think that's the most important things that help you like in the long term. And with long term, I mean like two months working on a problem. Um, it will pay off like in those two months, it really pays off if you spend like one week really starting simple and starting looking into the data and so on. What are the steps that you take then to solve a Kaggle problem? You mentioned starting simple, but digging a bit more into this, do you have some kind of fixed list of things that you would do whenever you start a competition? I don't know, one, looking at the data to training a baseline. What are the steps that you usually follow? Or maybe there aren't and it's very problem specific and you don't have a, a fixed approach. Um... I don't have a fixed approach, but I have a rough approach that um, I often use. Um, and that's basically starting on a high level, looking at the data, just to get like a feeling, 
also just for choosing the competition if it makes sense or not um sometimes the data has some flaws or there's like um some luck involved and those kind of things um so i really just a high level look at the data is enough to understand how how big the data is what kind of models and architectures make sense because i for example i'm really interested in deep learning approaches and deep learning models but some for some problems deep learning just doesn't make sense so um, i try to avoid those competitions and rather join ones where you can do like a lot of deep learning and more architecture engineering and this kind of things um, and as soon as you have like a high level understanding how the data looks like i implement a very simple um, pipeline for training a first model um, having done a lot of competitions i already have kind of a boilerplate code so i don't use any of the high level frameworks but have like developed my own kind of code-based framework over the time and I start using this and then yeah really design like the, the simplest model I can think of and set up a pipeline which runs really end-to-end -end, like taking the training data uh, training a model evaluating the model um, and also calculating the competition specific metric mm -hmm. um, because for some competitions the metrics are quite complicated and it can take some time just to implement or replicate mm -hmm. how they, they evaluate your model. So I, having a very simple model, I use this to um, just to test if everything runs smoothly. And as soon as this first simple pipeline is set up, um, I continue with the next step. So that's the, the crucial thing. As soon as you don't have like this set up, mm -hmm. um, a simple pipeline, getting like the competition metric, having a very good validation set, you don't need to continue <laughs> because mm -hmm. everything else you will do uh, in the future will give you not, not good good results and you won't have any any feeling how good the model will perform if you can't track like the competition metric. Um, so this very step needs to be finished so until I go to the next step. And the next step is then just like iterating through as many ideas as I have. So reading a lot of uh, research papers, reading past solutions to competition, which have been similar. So given that that Kegel has so much knowledge, you can also go through past competitions and read what people have done there. Um, yeah, read through research papers, read through GitHub repositories. So really a lot of reading, re-implementing um, and trying as many ideas as you can, but still, using a very simple model just because that enables you to iterate more quickly and at the end of the day um, after like two months or so it comes down in on like who tried the most ideas it's not like <laughs> who had the most luck in finding something but like finding something useful really depends on how much you tried because 99 percent of things won't help your your architecture or the problem so it's all about trying as much as possible to find like the very specific thing that um, also differentiates you from other competitors. Um, it's like more like a pro approach. I think for a beginner, it's good enough to just mm -hmm. like uh, try to get your own stuff as good as possible. Um, and then the very last step. So the second step is all about research and iterations. And the last step is 
like scaling up your architecture and um, approach. So using a deeper model, using more data, using um, if you use like if it's like a computer vision problem, use higher resolutions for your images, this kind of things. But I only use this like in the last two, three weeks where I already have like the rough solution in mind mm-hmm. and it's like really hedging or like coming really up with the, like the final final model I want to submit. Okay, very interesting. So there are three steps. First is getting a baseline, a baseline and a pipeline to run. So that's you make sure you have a model that you can evaluate on the competition specific metric. Secondly, iterating and finding ticks that work for this problem, but while keeping a simple model because it enables you to try many things. And then third step, um, well, in the last days, weeks, or of the competition, you try uh, bigger models in order to boost performance, I guess. Yeah. And so on the second step, just one last question on this. What do you mean by, what can you try if you don't change the model? Is it more on the data side, on the data processing side? Um, is it more on the hyperparameters tuning? What can you improve if you keep the, the model fixed? There, there are so many things you can improve. So you can um, look at the data specifically. So you can filter the data, um, reduce some noise there. You can um, um, look at external data. So sometimes there are like external data sets which are, which are useful. You can um, augment the data. You can do a lot of data augmentation. So the model generalizes better. You can use different losses. Mm-hmm. You can tune the hyperparameters. You can look into post-processing. So sometimes after your model predictions, you have some rule-based post-processing, which which can help uh, improve your your score. So there's there's a lot of things you can you can do apart from the mm-hmm. actual modeling. Yeah, those are great advice, and I must say it's it's very similar. And I guess this is also why Kaggle is so popular. But it seems very close to just a normal data science problem that you would solve in industry, right? You, um, well, first you want a simple iteration. You want to make sure you can solve your problem and then you build complexity. You need to pay attention to the data a lot. You need to also look at the post-processing. Once your well, the output of your model is not always the final solution. You need to think about what it means and whether, um, well, yeah, you can make improvements or you can interpret this output correctly. So it sounds like it's quite close to, to data science in industry, actually. Yeah, I think it's really close. So sometimes people say things like, yeah, on Kaggle, you only have like a play play data set on, on which you then run your models on, but that's actually not true. So most of the time, the companies that host this kind of competitions they use like a relevant data set for the use case with all the the perks their data has so people can really like try to find solutions for problems they have in the data set so it's not only like coming up like with like a good model but it's all about understanding the data why the data has this kind of issues and finding solutions in addressing these issues and the solutions can be model based so having a model that is capable of like addressing those kind of issues. Mm-hmm. So handling like missing data or this kind of things. Or you can like address these issues by yourself by just like 
fixing missing data by some imputation mechanisms or using like external data which has more higher quality or improve the quality by by yourself by hand or so on so there's um yeah so all kinds of things which are really um, related to the data and really related to a real um, day-to-day project yeah i i see two things where it might differ from industry and i mean i think it makes sense that they're also not fully the same like those are just different things but i see two different things correct me if i'm wrong the first one is deployment like you're not deploying a model in production and so most of the time actually in industry when you have this baseline so this step one that we talked about you have this baseline model most of the time it's good enough and you would just deploy this in production and move on to another project because you've solved your problem and you don't really care of getting another few percentage improvements by training, you know, very big models. So in industry, sometimes you will just stop after step one. Obviously, you will need to interpret those results and you need to really understand your data. But once you're sure that you've got a good, simple model, uh, because it's easy to deploy, because it's less risky, you would often stop after step one. So that's one thing that I see. And the second thing, it looks like Kaggle is still more model-centric than, whereas the industry is a bit more data-centric. What I mean by this is it looks like model is a big, is quite important in Kaggle, and it looks like in industry data is more important because on Kaggle, you've got a fixed data set, whereas in industry, you don't even know which data you're going to use. Like, you don't have a fixed data set. You need to look, sometimes you need to collect the data, create the data, And then only after that, you can train your model. But in Kaggle, you're already kind of given the data. And so it solves a part of your problem. Do you, do you agree with this? Um, partly. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's good to disagree as well. I I, want to have your your view. I mean, um, with respect to deployment. So in the most recent competition, so since a year or two, Kaggle shifted towards like forcing participants in not submitting like the raw predictions, but submitting code to do inference on the test set. And there you Very already cool. need to put a lot of focus on efficient um, inference. So you need to basically have your model deployment ready, but the the scale compared to industry is way, way lower. So it, it's like you need to do something with respect to inference and deployment but it's not something that is like production ready and scalable to like customers and this kind of things. So it's like deployment light. Mm-hmm. So, so, so it's cool. Um, and then I'm, I'm agree with you like that in the real world is really like data centric and also the, the metric, for example. So in each Kaggle target competition, you have, you're given like a final metric on which you're evaluated. Yeah. But in the real world, like just, getting to the point where you have like a metric that reflects your business case that can be like hours mm-hmm. of discussions with like different stakeholders just to, to find some value how you how you measure performance and for Kaggle all the step is already done and you're just given like the value of the final the final choice of metric which should reflect the business case so I was like and we can talk about this this later you know I was working in the startup I had like so many discussions just to find like a good um, evaluation mm-hmm. metric reflecting the business case. There's like 
more than half of the time mm -hmm. spending on a project sometimes just goes into this. Yeah, yeah, same actually. That's a very good point. I didn't think about the metric, but I remember one of my first projects at my previous company, Iwoka, was I spent like a week trying to find the right metric because if you get the metric wrong, you can have an amazing model performing really well. It's just not going to solve the right problem and it's just going to have no value. So definitely metric is a important and sometimes quite difficult thing to, to set up. Um, but yeah, I'm curious now. I mean, we talked a lot about Kaggle, the competition, how it works. Um, I'm not super familiar with Kaggle. I've done some basic um, stuff on the platform. So yeah, it was great to learn more about it. I'm curious to go back to your career and understand a bit how you got from becoming, well, top 500, top 100 to what you are today, like world number one. How how did this work and how did you evolve from getting started to becoming world number one on Kaggle? So let me first explain what world number one means. Mm -hmm. So there's a specific ranking related to competitions. Um, so in each competition, after the competition is over and you are evaluated on the private leaderboard, you can earn a medal. So there are like bronze, silver, gold medal, depending on your, your placement at the end. So if there's like a thousand teams competing and that's like the rough number um, in this kind of competitions, if you're getting into like top, I don't know, like top 100 or so, you get like a silver medal. If you get like in top 10, you get like a gold medal. That's like the rough uh, like um, mm -hmm. estimation. Um, and like the top few teams, like the top three or top five, really depending on the sponsors, also get like some prize, um, prize money or other, other benefits and so on. And additionally to those incentives, you earn points for each competition. And those points um, depend on the final placement you mm -hmm. have how many people participated because it makes a difference if you're like ninth place out of 10 or if you're like ninth place out of mm -hmm. a thousand and uh, the size of your team. So because Kaggle really fosters like teamwork, you can also compete within a team up to five people. And of course, people who are like competed in a team of five get like less points than people who mm -hmm. were competed by themselves. So those three factors determine how many points you get after a competition. And then over multiple competitions, those points are basically aggregated and they determine like the world ranking. So um, right now I did like more than 70 competition in, in the seven years. Oh. And by the points I accumulated in this 70 competitions, I have like the highest number of overall points in, in the world. And that like determines like the, the world rank. Um, so but the way how I got there was really like gradually improving. So I started, as mentioned, the very first competition, I got like ranked 500 out of 1000. Although I spent like hours every day working on this problem. The next one, I got like one uh, rank 100 out of 1000. The next one, I got like rank 50 and so on. So I gradually improved um, and I gradually like improved the skills and knowledge and also the, the code base I have. So when I, when I started, I barely couldn't write any Python code by myself. And, and now I do, nowadays I have like a whole bag of like 
code repositories I can look into of like similar things I've done um, and know where to find similar things and so on and so forth. So it really like it's a gradual process over like seven years continuously um, working on this this kind of um, problems and projects. Okay. Until is there is there some kind of recency weighting of your points? Like for example, if I join well today, I guess let's say I've been joining for a year, can I become number one, or is that very difficult because you've been here for seven years? And is there some kind of recency weighting in in the score? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the, in the score, there's like a decay. So each okay. day, points decay. Um, but just to give you some indication, if you would join today and you want to become number one in the world, you would need to win probably four competitions just by yourself. So that, that's like, um, so in the seven years, I won seven competitions and I got like a dozens of top three placements or so. So that's that's roughly like the the range which you which you need to to become like in, into this kind of area. Yeah, still a long way to go, I guess. If I'm just starting, which which makes sense. I yeah wouldn't assume this to be to be easy. But the the interesting thing is that I think at the beginning the world ranking is not even like the the focus yeah. of like the incentivation. So. Hegel also, and we haven't talked about this yet, but Hegel also has like a tier um, system. So you start as like a beginner and you can advance to like an expert and then a master and then the final step is grandmaster. So there's some and then um, there's some incentivation to to reach like this this different levels um, because you see what rank other people have and and so on and so forth. So, and only after you achieve like the highest rank, you start focusing, okay, so what's next now? Mm -hmm. Because I'm already like a grandmaster, what I do now. And then you start looking at this world ranking, which is spanning across like multiple competitions and so on. Can, can we dive into one particular Kaggle problem that's Kaggle competition that you won or, or you were close to winning um, just to get a feel of what a competition could look like? Um, yeah, do you have one in mind? Um, we can talk about the most recent one. So I was very lucky to win a competition two weeks ago, I think. Um, and I had a great team with the with one teammate. Um, and the competition was about American Sign Language finger spelling. <laughs> so... The, the thing is, someone who's like um, communicating with a deaf or hard hearing person, they use sign language. Mm -hmm. And more, more specifically in America, you have American sign language, which differs from other um, like European sign, sign language and so on. Um, and then this specific sign language, there's a part which is all about finger spelling. So spelling, um, not words, because for words, normally you, you use like a sign for a word, but the use case is rather spelling a phone number or spelling a web address or, or spelling an address or something. So you have like per character, you have like a sign and then you spell on, on the camera. And this competition was to, was about, um, having like a video where someone spelled like, um, phone number or something and you need to transcribe in the into the actual text mm -hmm. 
So it sounds like quite a complex task. And it is quite a complex task. Um, yeah, and, and this competition was very, very interesting. There were like 1,500 teams competing. Um, the prize money was quite high and it was sponsored by Google at the end of the day. Um, and the interesting thing there is that it has a lot of similarity to speech recognition. And um, yeah, you can really learn and read a lot um, from speech recognition and try to apply to the sign language. And I, I really like about this competition is that you also dive into the domain. So just like working on these problems um, and seeing like really looking at the data and seeing how people like sign, like the signers are really different too. So they have like different um, kind of how they spell. They're like left-handed and right-handed signers. They are like get closer to the cameras. They are faster or slower. It really like makes a lot of mm -hmm. difference. And you need to basically take all these things into consideration to do well in the competition. Because at the end of the day, you will do as you will to, to like recognize the, the finger spelling as accurately as you can. Um, yeah, this was really, really interesting competition. And it also had a quite coming back to your deployment into production mm -hmm. um, thing. This competition was special because there you already had to submit a deployment ready um, model. So the model had to be converted in a TensorFlow Lite format. They can, in theory, just deploy a, okay. a mobile app they have. And that gave you some additional. Um, challenges because you need to uh, put a lot of focus in converting into the specific format and making it as efficient as possible with like high restrictions. So the final model size should be lower than 40 megabytes and it should need less than four, uh, mm -hmm. less than 100 milliseconds per sample and this kind of things. Um, but I think that's not the, the typical use case. So normally it's easier to, to submit, but in this one, that gives like an additional interesting, interesting challenge. So just to make sure I understand, I mean, it was quite clear, but um, the training data, like one, one raw data would be like a video of someone doing signs. And the goal was for you to transcribe what they were uh, intending to say. Yes, roughly. Yeah, roughly. Why it's roughly? Uh, it's a, a bit more complicated because they didn't give you like the actual video, but they used an, um, a model to extract key points from the video. Okay. Uh, just to uh, anonymize the people and to have it run faster on a mobile phone. So you're not getting the actual video, but you get like 500 key points of the person. And those key points are something like pose key points, like shoulders or like your nose and so on. And okay. then key points within your hand, like um, fingertips and knuckles and things. And also like uh, key points in your face, like uh, ears and eyes and, and lips and so on. Um, so the raw input data you have access to is rather a sequence of these key points, which I extracted from the, from the video sequence. And that's what I'm saying. It's more complicated to, to explain, mm -hmm. but... It's okay. like just one step in between from the original video. Um, they extract those key points and you were given those key points with all kinds of if issues those key points have because the model they're using those key, uh, 
they are mm -hmm. using to extract those key points. This model also has like a lot of makes a lot of errors. So sometimes you cannot see the hand in the video, then you have a lot of nans in your in your key points. Or sometimes the person does like I don't know, weird things and then there's also stuff missing or things like this. And can you give a simple framework or view of your of your solution and why do you think that your solution was was better than others? Like what are the one or two smart things that you implemented that you think made you win? Um, so technically speaking, my model was an encoder decoder architecture where the encoder is a mixture of convolution and transformer. So convolutions are really local um, functions or building mm -hmm. blocks, which consider like just small areas together. And transformers have like a wider range of um, uh, interaction of the input. And combining both um, was like really powerful for this approach. And the, the actual architecture I took from speech recognition. And we put a lot of effort into making the, the inference very efficient. Mm -hmm. So I would say half of our like the the performance of our model just comes from having more efficient inference than other teams um, and this enabled us to use a deeper model mm -hmm. so if you are like restricted in having a model which is only 40 megabyte then if you can like have double the size of a like double as um, big architecture as other teams then this this gives you like a better result and you can only have like a bigger model at the end if you run it more efficiently mm -hmm. in the in the inference part. So half of our success was due to like really efficient deployment, but mm -hmm. really efficient like um, inference. And the other half was about like the model architecture um, or the, the mm -hmm. other part. And then one other key point I would say was all about augmentations. So because the test set was um, split by signer. So you don't have the same people signing in the test set than mm -hmm. you have in the training set. So it's really important. And that's a very good choice from the organizers to split it this way because that's the real world example. You want to, your app to, to be like very good on new people who are signing mm -hmm. and not the ones you have been trained on. Right? Yeah, so it makes sense to reflect this this um, in your in your training and test split. Um, and of course, we also reflected this in our training and validation split. Um, so all these augmentations reflected like the difference in, in signers. So having an augmentation which makes uh, someone sign faster or slower, or having it like rotate their their hands, or having it closer or f further away from the camera, and, and this kind of things. So we implemented all these augmentations by our hand. And this really helped us to generalize very well to new signers. Mm -hmm. And I think that was like also a huge part of our of our success. Okay, amazing. So and this you won you won this competition, right? Well yeah. done. Well yeah. done. Yeah, looks and it's it's very funny because actually the last episode I had a conversation with 
Davis Blalock was the first employee at Mosaic ML. I don't know if you know th this company, which got acquired yeah. by Databricks recently. And he also mentioned that efficiency is actually an indirect, making your algorithms more efficient is just an indirect way of making them better. Because if you can make them more efficient, you can make your algorithms bigger or you can train longer. And in the end, you will have a better model. And it's maybe something that we don't, I mean, now it's obviously becoming very popular, but I think is that something that I realized um, myself? But yeah, efficiency is a very, very important part of um, the AI space. And yeah, I guess, well, you're doing this quite a lot at, at NVIDIA. And I want to touch on your on your role at NVIDIA um, now. But yeah, I think efficiency, making your algorithms more efficient will just indirectly make them better. Yeah, I fully, I fully agree. And you also need to really understand the algorithm and model very well, coming back to the mathematics and stuff behind, um, to make it more efficient. So in order to make it more efficient, you need to understand what it's doing and what you can like twist or change to run it more efficient. And that's why you need to, yeah, at some point, if you want to become an advanced data scientist, you need to yeah, understand the maths behind the algorithm. So maybe one last part on Kaggle. We talked a lot on Kaggle. I also mentioned that you're working at NVIDIA. The two are actually strongly related, but yeah, can you explain a bit what's your current role at NVIDIA and why Kaggle and NVIDIA is very strongly related um, in your case? Yeah, so in, our, in, in my and our case, so I'm part of a team within NVIDIA who are called the KGMON. Um, which is an acronym for Kaggle Grandmasters of NVIDIA. So we are only Grandmasters and there are, I think, only 300 Grandmasters in the world on Kaggle out of this 14 um, million <laughs> people mm -hmm. registered. So our team are eight, eight Grandmasters from, from, um, from Kaggle. And our main role is to participate in machine learning competitions. Not only Kaggle, but also like other platforms or competitions related to conferences like NeurIPS or CVPR and so on. Um, so it's a really high synergy between like both worlds. So like the, the competition world and um, within NVIDIA. And the idea is that we bring the knowledge which you build or you need to do like very well in these competitions into NVIDIA. So because in the competitions, you not only need to apply state of the art and you need to have like an overview of what is uh, the, the state of the art, but you need to like put something on top, not only yourself, but other top teams as well. So we have like a really good overview and feeling what is like the next state of the art? What is like the next things that are like relevant the next half year or the next month? And we bring this knowledge into NVIDIA working on like internal projects or working with clients. That's like half of the, the, the idea. And the other one is that we also use NVIDIA products and, and um, like algorithms mm -hmm. in this kind of uh, competitions. And we can give like feedback, how good they're working, what features are missing. So we are, have like connections to all kinds of internal teams and, and testing hardware and software and giving feedback, okay, for this and this type of problems, we need this and this feature to do to do very well. So giving them some really 
hands-on experience mm. what is needed by the industry and and um, yeah working together with them and implementing this stuff and the first part if i don't understand well you're reporting to nvidia what are the architectures that work and stuff like this is it to shape their products and their research directions essentially uh essentially yes so yeah shape and and like contribute or to, to discussions there. So for example, if there's like a competition in the space of speech recognition, so right now there's a competition ongoing with like Bengali speech recognition and people really share what is like state of the art for speech recognition. Then um, after the competition, we discuss with people within NVIDIA who are working on speech recognition and doing research and having a product. So there's like Nemo automatic speech recognition toolkit um saying okay that's the the most recent models they won this competition mm -hmm. you should include them if you not have them already in our in our product um we tested this and this model which you have it did well or not so well because of this and this reason so really bringing like both worlds to together okay and making basically making sure that the products of nvidia are really targeted to the data science industry and to the latest trends of, of today. Yeah, exactly. Very cool. And yeah, obviously it's very closely tied to Kaggle because most of your time is spent doing Kaggle or other competitions, um, which is why, yeah, we talked a lot about Kaggle, but it's also very closely related to your job at NVIDIA. I, I want to now move to the last parts of the episodes closer to previous experiences and career advice. Um, just two main questions, actually. The first one is I mentioned that you were the CTO of a startup before you before you joined NVIDIA. So do you want to talk a bit about this experience of founding your own startups and the learnings and failures that you got along the way? Yeah, so I began not by founding this startup, but like one step before. So I, I was working in an insurance company and after I started working like in data science and, and Kaggle competitions, I transitioned there to a team which was focusing on data science. Um, but unfortunately, they they were not applying so much deep learning and mm -hmm. like the, the higher machine learning skills. So I was quite a bit of quite frustrated that I could not use my skills and apply my skills to like the day to day projects. So that's where I made the choice to uh, start my own startup, which can focus only on deep learning based solutions or deep learning consultants, consultancy. And I was lucky to have done my PhD with two others who were also just like starting with machine learning and looking in this deep learning things. So we had the idea of funding the startup and then providing deep learning based consultancy. Um, not only nationally, but also internationally, because luckily, because of Kaggle and stuff, you also build like a very good network of like data scientists mm -hmm. all across the world, because Kaggle is like internationally, there's like people all across the world are working on this platform and you get the, get on, you see like the same faces mm -hmm. and you need to, you see the same people performing well and so on and so forth. Um, so you build like a great network. Um, yeah, then we founded this company and um, worked on on what 
first try to get like projects and work on projects with, with um, clients. Yeah. When was this? Like which year? Was it after the deep learning bo oh. boom? Like during the deep learning boom? Uh, in the beginning, I would say. So it was like four years ago, five to four years ago. So we founded it five years ago and then I stayed for one year before I joined NVIDIA. Okay. So the, the boom, it's, it's tricky because the boom <laughs> worldwide or the boom in the US is like before the boom in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, so it was like already booming in the US, but it was largely start, um, slowly starting in Europe and especially Germany. So that's why it was a little bit frustrating because I was like really by Kegel and this like internationally network, I was like seeing what is happening and what's possible with deep learning. Um, but the, the, the companies in Germany mm -hmm. out, were lagged a little bit behind. So that's where we thought, okay, that's a good, good starting point to, to help accelerate this process and and help people getting started with deep learning and so on and why did you why did you stop there and are there any learnings or failures from from your journey there um i stopped simply because i got a dream job at nvidia <laughs> so i can like do Kaggle competitions or other competitions and uh, work at like a great company at the same time um so I was happy at the startup. I really liked being like your own, um, you're like self-managed basically. Mm. But I would say the downsides, especially if you have like a very small startup. So we are only like four people at the end. So we had to do everything by ourselves, like sales, marketing, mm -hmm. also things like taxes and health insurance and whatnot. So this takes a lot of time and takes a lot of your your day-to-day -day business comes down to to dealing with this kind of stuff and not really working on actual problems and i really like problem solving so mm -hmm. that's what like inspires me and fascinates me is like to really do problem solving and not do problem solving related to tax issues mm -hmm. <laughs> but do problem solving related to data science um so i think whoever goes into the startup scene needs to be aware that there's um, a lot of stuff to do which is not related to whatever field you're working on but it's related to bureaucracy and related to like getting your startup mm -hmm. up up to feed and and like um get your your company company working at the end of the day yeah, especially at the beginning, if you're just four, yeah, I guess there are quite a lot of things you need to do um, that are unrelated to AI. And so you wanted to, I guess, remain specialized in AI and keep doing more of AI, which is why you you left your your startup and you moved to NVIDIA. Yeah, exactly. Great. Okay, let's finish the episode with just one advice. If you had one advice for a data scientist to progress in their career, what would it be? Just one advice. I would say just start working on a Kaggle competition <laughs> because without joking, Kaggle is like the most efficient way to build up knowledge just because you're working on a hands-on on project. There's nothing more efficient than really working on the project you can read like tens, tens of books or whatever, but uh, just working a week on a competition, you will gain much more knowledge 
related to, to data science. And it's also more applicable to, to, the, re, to the real world because um, you need to take care of all this, the most important things. You also need to take care in the real world, which is like solid um, validation, helping your model to generalize well, all these kind of things. You really learn in an efficient way on, on the Kaggle platform. Well, Christoph, thanks a lot. Learned so, so much from you today. Uh, it was great to chat with you. Good luck with everything. Hope you will remain number one forever. Um, <laughs> although that might be difficult, but yeah, good luck. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> yeah catch, up, catch up soon. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. It was a great experience. <laughs> <laughs>